0: Evidence and Answers. Trained and educated in some of the finest Hindu schools, Rahil rose to prominence as a leader in one of the most influential Hindu organizations in the world. Many admired him as a model Hindu holy man. How did such a devout Hindu come to faith in Jesus? What were the factors that led him out of Hinduism and to Christ? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat will continue on with his interview with guest Rahil Patel as they discuss his fascinating journey out of Hinduism and to faith in Jesus Christ.
1: This led to my theology changing slightly. I was giving a lot of talks, especially in North America, at the national conventions, and somehow God I didn't know at the time, but God was pushing the boundaries and borders of my mind and sort of shaping and telling me that, you know, God is much bigger than a guru, much bigger than these images in a, in a temple. And so I just had this very different view of God. I didn't know who he was or what to call him, but I just knew that he was bigger than what I believed. And in Orlando in 2007 I gave the keynote speech at the National Convention, and it was a 10-minute intro. I quoted a verse from the Hindu scriptures, but then I just gave an interpretation of my own based on my travels, my experiences, what I had sensed, and I got a standing ovation. (laughs) It was so bizarre. I went and sat down next to my colleague, who's also a priest, also from England, and he said, How did you interpret that verse like that? It was amazing. And I thought to myself, oh, dear, only if you knew. It had nothing to do with Hinduism, you know, just this idea that God is much bigger uh, more beautiful and um, bigger than the borders we've created in our minds. So now this led to problems later on, (laughs) obviously. At the senior level, people... Started questioning. I didn't know this. People felt that they couldn't challenge me head on. They said, Well, you know, there's something wrong in his talks. (laughs) I was in America in 2010. I had a period of illness as well during my life as a priest. And so I was in the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida for 10 months. And in the weekends, I used to travel around the US and preach in various temples and congregations. And my message was getting broader, slightly away from the central doctrine that we all were pursuing and believed. Anyway, after my clinic time was over, I came back to England and I thought, let me go back to India and meet the guru because he was still my father figure. He was still my God. I was still going to preach that he's God, even though I had these doubts and all these questions. I said, let's go and see him. And that meeting didn't go down well long story short, this is 2011. I went into the meeting. Now, I always had access to him privately. Nobody would be in the room when I would meet him. Now, this is a huge organization, you know, by 2010, you know, we had invested $700 million in building temples in North America alone. And um, around the guru, you have senior priests, you have his full team, you have personal secretaries and so on and so forth but whenever in my life I've I'd wanted to meet him I was always given an empty room private so I went in to see him but as I went in a group of senior priests came with me and I thought okay something's up something's not right I'm I'm cutting a fairly long story short here anyway that meeting was about my theology it was about my speeches, my beliefs. And for the first time in 20 years, I sat there listening to everyone debate and discuss my attitudes. The guru said, okay, look, for punishment, I'll keep you in the villages of India. You can't go to the West and influence the West like this. For the first time in my 20 years, I said no to God. (laughs) I'm not, I'm going to go back to England. He said, okay, I'll put you in a small town in the U.S., but not England. I said, no, I'm going to go back to England. And they carried on debating. And then suddenly it just came out of my mouth. I said, look, I just want to go back home. I'm gonna leave these robes, these orange robes, and I want to go back into civilian life. And the room went silent. And he said, yeah, okay, fine, you go, which was a shock to me, you know after 20 years of service, and he gave me two conditions, never to give a speech again in your life and um, not to talk to anyone in the congregation. And I frankly agreed because whenever I gave talks, I never believed what I was preaching anyway. So I used to tell my congregation's time in again, please don't record this. In Norway, I was speaking to the congregation and I asked them, I said, do you believe everything I'm telling you? They said, of course, you're wearing orange robes, you're not married, you've sacrificed your family, you don't get paid, you must be telling the truth. And I thought, is that the parameters you use to figure out and find out if someone's telling you the truth, how holy of an appearance they give you? So I wasn't really concerned about speaking and not speaking. I agreed and on December the 27th, Patrick, I left priesthood and I was back in civilian clothes and uh, came back to England.
2: Oh, wow. So that's quite a journey here. I relate to some of it I uh, growing up, you know, in a Japanese Buddhist home, but Buddhism not as extreme as your form of Hinduism was. Wow. Well, tell us then uh, your journey. Then, how did you come to find Jesus Christ?
1: Oh, well, truth be told, one friend in central London, he had a hotel and he was a very loyal friend to me. He said, Look, come and stay here. I won't tell anyone that you're here in my hotel. My parents had moved overseas by then. It had been 10 years since they had moved out of England. So they weren't there. So he said to me, Look, stay here. Now let's. You know, look for a job for you after twenty years. I don't know what kind of a cV you can you can write, but he said for four weeks, you know just um, walk around the city on your own because as a priest, we could only go outside the temple complex if we were with another priest and a couple of followers. We were never allowed to be on our own when we left the complex. We always had to be in pairs and always with followers so now my mindset at this stage when I landed in England was a disappointment with this whole idea of God, you know, pursuing God. Because, you know, Patrick, I I did a 2,000-mile pilgrimage across India. I climbed the sacred mountain of Girnar three times. That's 10,000 steps. Hmm. Uh, you go up through the clouds to offer worship to the Hindu mystic Tatatrayi. I went to the birthplace of Ram, the birthplace of Krishna, bathed in the Ganges, bathed in the Yamuna, several pilgrimages like that. And I thought, you know, what did that do for me? And so I was really disappointed. Fair enough. You know, the priestly life the the work that I did was successful. You know, the organization started meeting presidents and prime ministers across Europe, ambassadors and things like that. And so I thought, look, I just want a quiet, simple job get married and settle down. So second week into Jan, I was walking to the station to catch a train into central London. And I was fully focused straight ahead. And for some weird reason, my head just turned 90 degrees to the right. And down this quiet road, I saw this church. And I thought, hmm, that'll be nice, you know, like the ones in Rome. They'll have lots of beautiful paintings and ornate you know, statues and gold leaf ceilings. Let's go and kind of have a look. You know, just be good fun. It was a Sunday morning around 11:15 a.m. and I went down this road and weirdly there were these two people standing at the entrance welcoming people in. I'd never seen that and they had these incredible smiles, you know, as if they had swollen a banana sideways. It was <laughs> really. And there, this this love that was coming off them was really creepy. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't fathom it. It was so strange. Those two are still friends of mine today. Anyway, I walked past them and I put my foot into this church, and the presence of God just fell on me like this powerful, beautiful blanket of peace. And that voice that I had 20 years back. Came back again and said, You're home. Again, it wasn't this audible voice, but I knew someone had just said, You're home. I went in and I went upstairs and I sat in the pew. I had never seen worship on guitars and drums. And but I just loved it. I loved the sermon and I just felt this incredible joy. I went back to the hotel. I sat on the corner of the bed and I said yes to Jesus in that instant, on that same day, which for me was fascinating because as a priest, I was always known to debate. I was always known to challenge a case or a cause. They would hold certain board meetings while I'd be away in Europe because they knew that if he's here and he doesn't agree, he'll change the course of the meeting. So here was just this tangible, beautiful, powerful encounter with Jesus that I didn't need any debate or preaching or anything. And that's what drew me to Jesus on the same day.
2: Yeah. Wow. That's quite a powerful experience there. Leaving a faith or in a culture that you grew up in, you know, poses some very serious challenges. So what kind of challenges or difficulties did you face when you gave your life to Jesus Christ?
1: There were two Challenges. I guess, you know, one was the practical challenge of losing everyone I had known for 40 years. And that's quite common for a lot of Hindus who come to faith in Christ, especially in India, because the community, the family then sort of excommunicates them, you know. So I only had a British passport to my name. I had no one left after 40 years as a reference point that helped me think that I had lived for 40 years. Everything, it was just like, it didn't exist. So losing some friends was really hard. My elder brother is also a priest. He's four years older than me. He's in North America. Now he was my best friend as well for 40 years. So he's no longer allowed to speak to me. It's been nine, 10 years now since I've spoken to him. So that's the practical challenge. The Spiritual challenge was, you know, coming from a religion and now into a relationship. That was the uh, that was the main challenge too. Because when I started to follow Jesus, I thought, okay, now what do I do? What do I do for him? What do I do? Now, Hinduism across all of the denominations is a works-based religion. It's fundamentally about pleasing God, working your way to a heaven, you know, doing this, doing that. And in my very first year in Christ, you know, God said to me, the sole purpose of your life is to be loved by me. I need you to learn how to be and rest in my presence and be. Because I thought, you know, I'll do this Bible collar, do that, do this, do that. He said, no, 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 no. I, I need you to really get this settled in your heart that you're a son first and foremost. You're not a speaker, you're not this, you're not that, you're a son. And so forgetting that revelation from head to heart took me a good few years. You know, stopping the works, stopping the striving, stopping the busyness around faith was very difficult. And it took a few years to come to that place of rest and being and practicing that rest and being and living from that place that was a huge challenge yeah
2: yes we are often told that hinduism is supposed to be an all-embracing religion yeah. that's the attractiveness of that religion that we're all embracing but you said you were uh, shunned by and had to leave the entire community it doesn't sound like an all-embracing kind of faith
1: Well, you see, there are a couple of things. It's a great question, Patrick. One of the reasons why they shun is because when someone like me rejects them, there's a lot of guilt and shame that is released over them. So guilt and shame is quite central to the culture of Hindus. And so not feeling that, not succumbing to that, one way of doing that is by shunning someone so that you Throw the shame on that person, the guilt on that person, and not bear it yourself. Philosophically, yeah, people say this often that Hinduism is all-embracing. But in fact, fundamentally, it's not. It's very monotheistic. It's every denomination believes fundamentally, crucially, that their way is the right way to God. So when you go into a Hindu temple, you'll notice which images are in the central shrine. That indicates that this is the path. This God that we believe in is the way to heaven. And you'll have other images around in the temple, but this is the way. So they say it's all embracing and they portray that. But when it comes to the real practice and real core beliefs, it's very monotheistic in that way it's very one way and so yeah that's that's why they shun they do shun
2: yes well you shared with us your story and your background and so tell us those of us who are engaging friends and family members in the hindu culture know what kind of things should we be careful of when engaging and trying to you know share the love of christ with our hindu friends here in the west
1: it's a great Great question. Several things that come to mind. The first and foremost is, you know, be well versed in the knowledge of that worldview. You know, I'm not saying spend 20, 30 years like I did. But, you know, you hear, Patrick, people say, even prominent preachers say something like Hinduism has 330 million gods. A, that's inaccurate. Worse, that's very insulting and offensive. So they have Tetriskar or Devta, which means 330 million angelic beings. They have one supreme God. They have several incarnations of that same God, but they don't have 330 million gods. And when you start saying things like this, it comes across as an insult, because you haven't really taken a keen interest of understanding. That's just one example. Another example you'll hear quite common, especially in the West, is Hinduism is monism, you know. That's just one of the 17 threads. So I did apologetics here in Oxford, and in the class, you know, someone said that C.S. Lewis said, that Christianity is the only faith that has a personal God. Now, that's true for Advaita monism, but you cannot say that to people from my former denomination or to the Hari Rama, Hari Krishnas, who are Vaishnavs, Vishishtadwit. They have a very personal God. The head of the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies believes in a personal God. So at one level, it's about really, you know, I often say that if you want to change the behavior of a person, you first of all have to understand how they see the world. And for that, you need knowledge. You you need to know what they're about. So that's that's the first step, which obviously takes time. The second thing is, and I see this typically done by Christians, is when they're trying to understand, especially apologists and evangelists, they highlight Christian truths to Hindus that actually appeal to a Christian audience and not to the Hindu. I'll give you an example. I was speaking to a Hindu at one university, and we were giving some free books at the time, the group I was with. And I gave a book, um, I was about to give this book of a prominent evangelist, and I read the table of contents very quickly. And one of the chapters was titled, Jesus is the only teacher in the history of mankind that overcame the greatest barrier of all, which is death. Now, That's true, but you're speaking to a Christian audience. Hindus don't care about death. Neither do Sikhs. Neither do Jains. Neither do Buddhists. You know, I even couldn't understand when I came to faith why Christians jumped up up and down, celebrating, singing, "Death is defeated! Death is defeated!" It wasn't ever an issue. So it's about it's it's these kind of things that may appeal to a Christian audience, but It it doesn't appeal to that audience. On that same note, you know, I hear sometimes Christians asking the question on salvation, right? For us, salvation is forgiveness of sins. Now, in that worldview, across all of the threads of Vedic philosophy, Moksha has a very different definition to what we have as salvation. So if you go to a Hindu and say, do you know you've sinned? He knows. And then you say, Do you know you need forgiven? It doesn't appeal to them because forgiveness is so peripheral to their practice for the sake of the liberation of their soul to go into heaven. Moksha for them is to outweigh the karma they've done in this birth and previous births by doing spiritual practices, by doing dharma, by going to the temple, rituals, by meditating, by worshipping. So their aim is to liberate their soul, which has been in and out of various bodies, birth and rebirth, and they want their soul to go to heaven. They want it to go to God. So we can't go in with just Christian concepts and expect them to really understand. We've got to look at what are they trying to achieve in their spiritual life? What's the end goal? How are they doing it? And then you know link that to gospel truths and build that bridge and then and have a discussion at that level and just one last thing quickly on that is you know some south Asians as well they relate christianity or the name word christian with western civilization or sometimes british colonialism So I've noticed in certain South Asian communities who are, you know, ministering to Hindus, they tend to use the word follower of Jesus instead of uh, Christian. So that sometimes helps just break this sort of political rhetoric that's constantly going on in India, that Christianity is a Western religion, it's a colonial religion, which it isn't. Obviously, you and I know that. But that also helps so these are some thoughts um patrick that that come to mind
2: so you know one of the things i think is really important when we're sharing not only with hindus but people from very different worldviews i think you bring up a good point is to really sit down and listen and see their worldview and their basic theology and where they're coming from and to get an understanding of you know where they're coming from because one of the things you pointed out is that there's really hundreds of different schools of Hinduism, and yeah. many of them are very different, so you really need to know what their worldview and basic theology is before you begin to share Christ.
1: Yeah yeah, yeah, that's why when I'm training certain churches in North America, I ask them, or I look in their city or town's vicinity and I make a note of the different Hindu temples that are there. And then I train according to the different doctrines and practices based on the community that are living in that church vicinity. Does, does that sort of make sense? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, when people say, I'm called to Hindus, I'm like, what does that even mean? It's going to take you eons <laughs> to, to work there. Just figure out who's doing what what kind of denomination is it in your town in your city which kind of temples are there and then you know look at the practices the culture the doctrines and that will give you an idea of how they see the world how they see you as a believer
2: as well yes at the uh, seminary i teach here uh, one of the classes i have is the world religions class and we do our Annual temple tour with the world religions class. And they're, they're surprised when we go to the Hare Krishna temple, how they're yeah. proclaiming they're monotheist. And the God they worship is a very personal God. And yet, when we go to another more classic, what they describe themselves as a more Vedic kind of Hindu yeah. temple, it seems more the classical kind of Hinduism that we study in class. Yeah. So, as yeah. you're saying, there's a great variety there yeah. in Hinduism.
1: Yeah. So, you know, like with, with, uh, the Hare Rama, Hare Krishnas, who have a high emphasis on bhakti devotion. You want to go down the route of Song of Solomon or or, or the Psalms or intimacy with Jesus. What does that look like? What does worship look like? You know, what does that word look like from the point of view of Christ? That would really appeal. And the other class that you're talking about, the Vedic classical sort of style of monism maybe, in that one you, you talk about other Christian concepts that relate to that particular denomination and worldview. And that's how you end up having more bridge building, effective, loving, respectful conversations.
0: We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence & Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps even hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrad.